Amen. Excited about getting into our second week in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 5 through 7. And this kind of begins a new section of the book for us um, as 2 Samuel 5 through chapter 10 are some of the most celebrated and glorious portions of all the Bible, especially of 1 and 2 Samuel. Just to bring us up to speed in the history of what we've seen so far, um, following the death of Saul, the first king of Israel, David is anointed king by the tribe of Judah, which is in the southern part of Israel. The other 11 tribes initially opposed David, as we saw last week in the opening chapters, but they finally joined Judah under his kingship here in chapter 5. Now the dominoes of blessing, now that God's anointed king, the one he has chosen, the one after his own heart is on the throne, the dominoes of blessing will begin to fall on God's people under David's godly unifying leadership with Jerusalem as the new capital of Israel. We're going to see this morning that the worship of Israel is restored, promises are enlarged, enemies are beginning to be defeated, and old promises by God are going to be kept. But we're going to be once again left wondering how long this high point is going to last based on what we've seen in the first chapters with David already accumulating for himself many wives. And so the subsequent chapters, as we're going to see, are going to tell us, and we're going to see David sin greatly in chapter 11, and he's going to suffer for it severely in chapter 12 through 19. And yet, despite all of David's sin and all of its consequences, God's kingdom is going to prevail because his promises are true and Christ is coming. We're going to see three things in these three chapters this morning, one for each chapter. There's the coronation of David as king in chapter 5. There's the celebration of David as the ark is returned to Jerusalem in chapter 6. And then there's the covenant that God makes with David in chapter 7. So we're going to see a coronation, a celebration, and a covenant and talk about what in the world does all that have to do not just with David, but with Jesus and with Jesus with us. First of all, let's look in chapter 5 at the coronation for David. We're going to see three things about this coronation this morning. First of all, a declaration, a declaration that... David is, in fact, the king. Look at verses 1 to 5 of chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David, all the tribes this time, not just Judah, but all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Remember, that's where he was living, where Abraham's buried, the place where God's promises are being kept afresh again. Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to David at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Remember, the, the first seven years of his reign, which we read about in the first four chapters, were somewhat contested. But 33 years after that, he continued to reign, this time over all of Israel together. These first five verses summarize for us what's going to happen in all of David's reign. He's going to enjoy a long, lengthy reign as a true king and a true shepherd of Israel. Psalm 78, verses 70 to 72, provide an apt summary of David's reign. 
He chose David as his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Isn't that a great epitaph on David's tombstone, as it were? Upright heart, skillful hand. If you want something to pray for your pastors, pray that verse. Pray that we would lead this congregation with an upright heart and with a skillful hand. You would do us a great blessing if you would pray those things regularly for us. So there's a declaration. Secondly, there's a demonstration. David is going to demonstrate his leadership by dislodging the pagan Jebusites that remain in Jerusalem, which will be the capital city of Israel. Look at verse 6. The king and his men went to Jerusalem about the, against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, Jerusalem. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Therefore we read of a king from Tyre recognizing David as king of Israel. Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Look at verse 11. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So we've got kings coming in from other surrounding nations acknowledging that David is the true king of Israel. So David is demonstrating his kingship, both in driving out the enemies of God and also welcoming the former enemies of God who desire to acknowledge him as king. Thirdly, there's not only a declaration and a demonstration, there's also David's defeat of the Philistines once again. In verses 17 to 25, as the chapter ends, David decisively defeats his enemies. Once again, the Philistines, those Philistines, they just keep coming, don't they? And they do. They're a large group, but David decisively pushes them back such that security and rest is brought to the land of Israel and especially the capital of Jerusalem. That's the coronation of David in chapter 5. His declaration, his demonstration, and his defeat of Israel's enemies. In chapter 6, we begin a celebration from David. David is enjoying an incredible upswing, as we saw in chapter 5, under his life and his leadership. His domestic and his foreign enemies have all been vanquished. He's been making all the right moves as king. He's ascent to the throne. He's moved the capital to Jerusalem. And now... Because of his love and devotion to the Lord, he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the sign of God's presence among his people, into Jerusalem. Now that's a good and a right thing to do. Now as we've made our way through 1 Samuel, we've been introduced and reintroduced to the Ark. This is not Noah's Ark, this is a different Ark. 
This is a gold-plated wooden box that's about four feet long and about two feet wide and tall. And it contains a jar holding manna. It contains Aaron's rod. It contains the stone tablets of the, the original Ten Commandments, or the second copy, once the first copy was broken. It was equi- it's equipped with gold rings so that it could be carried by the Levites using poles. And David's desire was to bring it back into Jerusalem as a symbol of God's presence. And so he's going to plan a great celebration for the bringing back of the ark. Remember, the ark had been exiled. It had been taken out again because it had been been passed around through Israel, out of Israel, because everywhere it was going, it was judging. So they didn't want it in the land. But now that David is on the throne and God is pleased that his anointed king is there, David feels total liberty, and he should, to bring the ark back in to Jerusalem and be among the people of Israel where it belongs. So let's see three more things about this particular incident in chapter 6. First of all, guilt. Look at the first 10 verses of chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called the name called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, who was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, or Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. Now that said new cart, new cart. We don't want a new cart. There shouldn't be a cart. Okay, we'll keep reading. With the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God to take hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perizuzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Now let's talk about for a minute what happened to Uzzah here. Some of you may be saying, I I, I don't get it. What was Uzzah supposed to do? Just watch it fall on the ground? I mean, the oxen stumbled. It wasn't Uzzah's fault. He's just trying to do God a favor and keep the ark from getting dirty. At the very least, you say the punishment feels way more severe than the crime. And I get that. But here's the thing. The whole point of this story is that the punishment was not more severe than the crime. Here's why. First, God had given specific instructions numerous times in the Old Testament, but specifically Exodus 25, about how the ark was to be carried. It had been constructed with little loops, rings, on the side so that you could run poles through it and carry it that way, and a little special covering to go over it so that no one would accidentally touch it. The Israelites chose to ignore those biblical instructions and do it their, new, do it their way on a new cart. Well, God doesn't want it done their way. He wants it done His way. Remember, this Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Holy of Holies, in the most holy place. This was not just an ordinary piece of furniture. This was a symbol of the living, vibrant, 
holy presence of God among his people. And the Israelites chose to ignore those biblical instructions and do it their way. They got it from the Philistines on the cart that the Philistines had taken it out on. They just decided the Philistine way was easier. I mean, why do we need to consult all these details? I mean, let's just do it. It's on a cart right there. We know we're not supposed to, you know, we're not going to carry it. We're just going to transport it. Listen, we don't get to decide the way God wants to be worshipped, do we? God decides that. But here's the second and the bigger issue. Uzzah unaware of his own sinfulness. Uzzah sees the ark about to touch the ground and he thinks, well, the ground's dirty. I should keep the ark from touching the ground. That'd be a good idea. We don't want to get the ark dirty. But Uzzah didn't realize he's way more filthy than God's ground. As the late R.C. Sproul said, the dirt had never rebelled against the authority of God. Only Uzzah had done that. It wasn't the dirt on the ground that would defile the ark. It was the touch of the man that would. You see, our sin makes us infinitely more offensive to the holiness of God than the the filthiest dirt on this planet. Have you seen some garbage heaps lately? I've been to North India. I've seen some garbage heaps out in the middle of the city, reeking up and down the blocks as you walk. You say, that's pretty offensive. No, that's a small, dim reflection of what we smell like in our sin before a holy God. Say, well, I'm not that sinful. I know I'm not perfect, but compared to others, I'm a pretty good person. But, dear ones, we say that because we're not thinking about how holy God is. We're thinking about how holy people are, which is not a good comparison. Imagine you were drinking a glass of milk, and I told you that a few drops of a lethal virus were just placed in that glass of milk before you drank it. You wouldn't say, well, it's 99% pure. No, at that point, the whole thing's defiled. Well, multiply that times a billion, and you're getting close to God's evaluation of our sin. The prophet Haggai says that God is of such pure eyes that he cannot even look upon wickedness. Coming into God's presence with sin on you would be like a tissue paper trying to land on the surface of the sun. We sometimes, like Uzzah, seem blissfully unaware of this. We glibly sing songs like, Lord, I want to see your face. Lord, come among us in this place. You realize that if God ripped the roof off this place and looked down on us, a bunch of us might die, right? But that brings up a question. Uzzah touched the ark, and he died. How many of you are holding a Bible right now? You're touching the holy, inspired word of God. Why are we still alive? Why am I? I'm preaching it for crying out loud. It's because of our second point, grace. There's not just guilt. There's also grace. Look at verses 11 through 13. And the ark of God remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Remember, David's like, I'm not bringing this thing in. Three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So the opposite thing starts happening. And David's like, oh, okay, well, maybe it's okay. 
So verse 12, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark from, of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Good job, David. When those who bore the ark of the Lord, you see that? Those who bore it, they're carrying it right now. Don't miss this. The ark's being carried by people on poles as it was instructed to be carried like Exodus commanded. When Uzzah was carrying it, he was doing it the Philistine way. He ignored God's instruction and he paid the price. But now they're doing it God's way and God is blessing them. Every six steps, David makes a sacrifice. God had provided a way by his grace for his people to be in his presence with safety through sacrifice. Right? That's what the Ark of the Covenant represented. The most important feature of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat on the top of it. This was the place where sacrifice was offered, where the high priest once a year would sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the ark to signify the lamb dying in the place of the people, and the people's sin would be covered. A death like Uzzah's is being reenacted in each and every sacrifice that was offered. And that's the gospel. Jesus one day would come, like one of these lambs that David was offering, one of this ox or this fattened animal that he's laying aside every six steps, well, Jesus would come and put an end to that whole system by his once and for all death on the cross. He was struck down for our Uzzah-like irreverence, and on the cross, all the wrath of God directed at our sin was absorbed into his body, and therefore we are free of our guilt by his grace. So what's our appropriate response? Guilt, grace, gratitude. That's how the Heidelberg Catechism is formatted, in case you haven't picked up on that. Guilt, grace, gratitude. And this is how David responds, beginning at verse 14. Let's continue reading there in chapter 6, verse 14. How did David respond as the sacrifices are being offered, as the ark is being brought back into the city? David danced. That's not a good Baptist word. David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Notice how one of David's wives responds. Verse 16, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, cake of raisins for, to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. That must have been a long day. And David returned to bless his household, verse 20. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today. That's biblical sarcasm. All right? The Bible is sarcastic. Don't take it too far if that's your gift. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants. 
female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. David said, Michal, God chose me when I was nothing. And now that I'm something, I'm going to show everybody that it's not because of something special about me. It's because of something special that God has done for me. David says, I don't care what people think about me. In fact, I don't want them to think about me at all. I want them to think about God. Now, one pastor I read this week tells a somewhat humorous story of a man hiking with his wife one afternoon in the middle of an open field when they got caught in a terrible hailstorm. Now, this was a massive hailstorm, one of those rare storms where the hail's large as baseball, maybe a softball. That'd be some large hail, probably baseball. Let's go with golf ball. Baseball, softball, make kill. But anyway, the man realized that if he didn't do something quickly, Obviously, his wife would be severely hurt. So he draped himself over his wife. He covered him with his own body so that the hailstones would hit him instead of her. And he thought the hailstorm would only last a few seconds, but the hailstorm seemed to just get bigger and bigger and bigger and come down harder and harder. And after a couple of minutes, true story, his ears were bleeding along with several spots on his head and arms. He tried to get to cover, but he was so weakened by the onslaught that he finally just collapsed over his wife, only able to shield her from the danger as, he, as she was laying underneath him. So after a few minutes, the storm finally ceased, but the hailstones had taken their toll. They both survived, but he was left with scars from where the balls had battered away at him, scars that remain to this day. He scare, carries around visible reminders of the day that he saved his wife. And on a local newscast, the man's wife was asked how she felt about their experience. She said, well, every time I see the scars, I love him more. Did you know that according to the book of Revelation, there's only one person in heaven with scars? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I will have perfected, glorified bodies that will know no hint of any kind of sin ever having dealt with them. Not so with Jesus. And it wasn't his sin. It was our sin. But Jesus will permanently have holes in his wrists or hands, his feet, one on his side from the spear being thrust in. Those scars will be our eternal reminder that the only reason we are there is because he stood between us and the hail of the wrath of God. And he covered us with his love and he kept the hailstorms of judgment from falling on us. And when we see the scars... We're going to love him a whole lot more. And that's why David was responding the way he was. Because such guilt, receiving such grace, demands such gratitude. Thirdly, a covenant with David. We've seen David's celebration. We've seen David's coronation. Now let's spend some time considering the covenant that God made with him. As chapter 7 opens, David has established himself as king. He's subdued his enemies. He's at rest. 
His people are prospering. And so we read in the first two verses of chapter 7. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Nathan's going to factor in later in this story for a different reason. Some of you know what that reason is. The king said to Nathan the prophet, Now, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. See, David says to his prophet, his chief advisor, God's appointed spokesman to him, Nathan, something ain't right. I mean, this has been great. We got the capital established in Jerusalem. Israel's unified under my leadership, mostly. Um, Things are peaceful with my enemies. The ark of God is with us again. But I'm up in first class in God's flying coach. It's time to give God an upgrade. And Nathan's response is, your God's anointed. He's with you. Do whatever you want. (laughs) And it's a good thing that David desires. He looks at his own house and he says, this is a palace of immeasurable wealth and glory and God's little tent out here looks depressing. So that night, in light of all of David's good plan and Nathan's good reassurance of David's plan, nevertheless, the Lord comes to Nathan in the night and says, Nathan, I want you to tell something to David. I want you to tell him, I appreciate the sentiment, but have I asked you for that? No, I haven't asked him for that. In all these years, when I was rescuing Israel and leading her and providing for her, did I ever ask any of you to build me a house? Have I ever asked you to do this for me, Nathan or David? And so, he says, on the contrary, I took David from the pasture. I've been with him. I've cut off his enemies. I'll make for him a great name. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them. I will give them rest, and the Lord will make David a house. I don't need one. So God tells David, thanks for the offer. But I'm not served by human hands as though I needed anything, for I give to all men life and breath and everything. And the giver gets the glory. So I will continue to be a giver, David. So we see here, first of all, with this covenant, a word of reassurance to David. God tells David that instead of David building him a house, God is going to build David a house. Now, he's already built him a physical house. The palace is already built. But he's not talking about building him a physical house. He's talking about building him a dynasty, a legacy, a kingdom. God says, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it through one of your sons. Which son is he talking about? Well, as with other Old Testament prophecies, the prophecy has a two-stage fulfillment. It's got a double fulfillment, as most Old Testament prophecies do. There's a short-term fulfillment, and there's a long-term fulfillment. Well, the short-term fulfillment is that God will establish his David's kingdom through a successful transfer of power from David to Solomon. And Solomon would eventually build the temple that David wanted to build, a house for God's presence. And under Solomon, David's kingdom would thrive like it never had before and never would again. But then Solomon 
repeats the sin of his father in terms of women and even takes it to a whole other, another level with the amount of wives and money and the volume of riches and horses and army and military power he has, and in fact the magnitude of his own idolatry. And eventually the kingdom is split. Which is why this prophecy points forward to another son, ultimately. And about 930 years after Solomon, another son was born in the lineage of David, in the very hometown of David himself, the town of Bethlehem. And that son would be the embodiment of the house that God is going to build for David. Jesus was both the ultimate temple that Solomon was building and the eternal king on the throne that God had promised. And dear ones, that kingdom has been built and is being built and will be consummated at the second coming of Christ. And we are all here this morning gathered together to acknowledge the realities of the Davidic covenant as they're getting fulfilled in time. You are submitted to the lordship of the king of the universe, and therefore you are in 2 Samuel 7. The 2 Samuel 7 reality of God establishing a covenant with David, which he would keep through his greater son, is the reason we're here. It's the reason we're disciples. It's the reason that we're Christians. It's the reason that we belong to God's King, the Lord Jesus Christ, as his willing children and servants. Secondly, David not only receives a word of reassurance here, but he receives a word of the reason for why God's going to do it this way. On what basis is God making this kind of promise to David? Well, it's not David's faithfulness. It's on his own faithfulness. God's promise to David is a one-sided promise. God did not choose David and his line because of their righteousness. If he had, David's would have never been chosen in the first place, let alone after he sinned. But God made a one-sided promise to David, and God kept all his promises to David, even when David was not keeping any of his promises to God. So that means in a couple of chapters, when David sins grievously through adultery and murder, that doesn't cancel out God's covenant with him. And when Solomon, David's son, wanders from God and marries 700 women and worships their idols, that doesn't cancel out God's covenant either because his covenant was never based on the goodness of the ones he was making covenant with. It was on his own goodness. Dear ones, does this not give you great hope for the reason you are in the covenant and the reason you will continue to be in the covenant? It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. If God didn't choose you in the beginning because of your righteousness, then your lack of it won't cancel His choice. The basis of His relationship with us from start to finish is all of grace. God is building a house through His Son, and it's a one-sided promise. Now, of course, we repent of our sin. We, we read sobering texts in our congregational reading about our sin, but pastorally, I want to give a word to many of us in this room who feel like because we fall into the same sinful pattern over and over again, striving but falling, striving but falling, and some of us ask, how many times will God continue to forgive me if I keep falling into the same sin? I mean, surely there's a point in which God's going to say, okay, enough, we're done. Well, the Apostle Peter once asked that question of Jesus when he said, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? 
And Jesus essentially said, base it on how often your heavenly father forgives you. So Peter says, like seven times? No, 70 times seven. Which is Jesus just trying to say, not that 490 is the magical number and then you get cut off. But, okay, we've reached 491, get ready for an Uzzah. No, that's not what we're talking about. In the Bible, seven is the number of completion. So saying 70 times seven is like forever and ever times infinity. Proverbs 24, 16, though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. Seven times. That's not incidental. In the Bible, if seven is the number of completion, saying the righteous man falls seven times means it seems like he keeps falling. The righteous man just keeps falling on his face, but he keeps rising. Keeps getting up, keeps getting up, keeps confessing, keeps repenting, keeps moving forward, even as he's falling back. The righteous man in God's eyes is someone who falls. That's what Proverbs says. The righteous man, fall, woman, child, boy, girl, falls seven times, but rises again. The righteous man shows he is righteous, not by not falling, but by what he does when he falls. He gets back up. He repents. Righteous people fall so much that it seems they can barely walk at all because they keep collapsing on Jesus. So what's the response? Well, we read in chapter 7, verses 18 to 21, what Dave read for us. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what's my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And it is indeed. We're reading David's very words right now. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your heart, you have brought all about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Now I want you to notice two words in David's opening of his prayer here. First of all, it says at the beginning of the prayer in verse 18, then David went in and sat before the Lord. And then in verse 21 it says, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Sitting and knowing. What did this whole section begin with? This is all about David going and David doing. And it ends with God telling David, sit down, know something. See, this passage started with David wanting to go and do for God. I'm going to build you a house, God. I'm going to do some great things for the kingdom of God. And God says to David, sit down and know something. Just be thankful. Just worship. Sit and wonder at all that I have done for you and write me a lengthy song of praise. That's it. Church, this should be our response. Every day of our lives, sit and know the Lord. Know the Lord. Now, we got to get up, okay? Got to go to work, all right? Got to take care of responsibilities. Got to family's responsibilities, friend responsibilities, work responsibilities, other responsibilities. We, we got other stuff to do. 
but don't do all that to pay God back for anything he's done for you. God doesn't want that. He wants you to sit and know what he's done for you. Church, God is building his own house. Nobody around here is building this church. If this church lasts another 50 years, it's because Jesus built it. I will build my church. Not Ted Chrisman, not Mark Redfern, not Thad Gunderson, not any long-term member here. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, God uses means, and his servants are worthy of honor. All that's true. But nevertheless, I will build my church, Jesus says. And we want God to continue to build his church here. But he's not asking us to build him a house. I sometimes grimace when I say, oh, Lord, we just want to build your kingdom. He's building his kingdom. We don't build his kingdom. Now, I know, we won't press analogy too far. Paul says we're co-laborers, right? But that's like a lowercase c, lowercase l, co-laborer. <laughs> we're shoveling rock around on the job site, and God's building a house, okay? So don't get too high of an esteem of the fact if you're taken out, oh, the cornerstone of the kingdom's going to fall now. No. The kingdom has one cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And when we build on him, our work remains. But God doesn't need any of us to build this church. God is the one building this house. Parents, God doesn't need you to build your kids. Now, you have a house. You have responsibilities. You're to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But, Psalm 127, we rise early and we go to bed late. We eat the bread of anxious toil if we don't know that the Lord builds the house. And the watchmen stay awake in vain unless we know that the Lord builds the house. So go to sleep. God is the one building that house too. If you're an overwhelmed wife, God doesn't need you to fix your husband. God will build your house. If you're a worried dad, God doesn't need you to make ends meet. The Lord watches over your house. Do your due diligence, but trust Him. If you're a defeated sinner, addict, struggling. God doesn't need you to free yourself. God is giving you a house. If you're a discouraged student, already two days in, this year's going to stink. God will get you into that grade or whatever or friend group if He wants you to. But walk with Him. At its core, Christianity is not about giving to God or doing things for God. Even though we are to serve the Lord with gladness and to not let, it, not let our zeal flag one inch, we are to boil in our service to the Lord, Romans 12 says. But we do it out of the overflow of what God has done, always remembering who is the builder here. This is what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, I laid a foundation, now another man's building on it. But it's neither I knew, you know, Paul, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. That's what we do. Yes, we plant. Yes, we water. But we are not the decisive actors here. Of course there's effort. Grace isn't opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. So let's not ever think that we earn something from God by our labor for him. Ooh, that's a dangerous place to get in with God. God does not want a transactional relationship with his children. God, I have done so much for you. What about your end of the deal? 
That shows that you're in it for what God gives you, not God himself. And God is more interested in you being in it for him, which is why he sends all these trials into our lives, to test us. Do you love me? Do you love me? Or do you just love it when I make your life easy? But rest assured, this life is all of grace. Every single bit of it. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I don't know about you. Now, grace is scary at one level, isn't it? Because grace means God has no limits on the demands he can make of us. If it's all free and it's all offered, oh, he can sign me up for anything, huh? Yes, he can. But if you know his heart and you know the kind of good God he is, the good father that he is, then we willingly put our names on that. And we say, yes, I'm yours, Lord. You gave all for me. Now, if you were a God in heaven who merely stood back and said, okay, I've created these people. It is their obligation to serve me. They just need to know that. I'm good. And he did nothing to prove it. Would he still be worthy of our allegiance? Absolutely. But what has he done to win our allegiance? The love of Christ compels us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For I am convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and that he died for all, so that we who live may no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. What's the whole ethic of the Christian life? God gave all for me, I give all for him. That's the ethic. It's not God standing back saying, I've, done no, I've, done, I've created you, you owe me allegiance. He said, I've died for you. I've lived for you. I've given everything that is precious for you. Give me your life. And we do because this is what love is and this is what love does. May God help us to remember the fact that 2 Samuel 5-7, to while it's about David, it's ultimately about Jesus. Jesus has received a coronation as God's king. Jesus is God's celebrated king in heaven. And we are his kingdom along with every one of the numberless multitude that has come to him and will come to him until his kingdom is consummated at his second return. Let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are to be your children, how grateful we are to be a part of a kingdom that Hebrews says is unshakable, that cannot be shaken. Lord, how grateful when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Lord, we live among the kingdoms of men. We live among a kingdom of the United States, even though it's not properly a kingdom, it's a republic. But nevertheless, it is one of the nations of the earth. And we even see that the great nations of the earth can teeter and totter. And yet there is one kingdom that shall remain forever and ever and ever. And it's not a nation state. It's the kingdom that our Christ is building with his own death, burial, and resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father. And we thank you that we are a part of that kingdom through the gifts of repentance, the gift of faith, the gift of salvation, which we did not earn. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, if there are any among us who are still walking around and living our lives as pseudo-kings, little kings and queens of our own lives. Help us to see that, and to be like, be like the, the, the one entire that we read about in chapter 5, who just recognized the king and willingly came and said, I pledge allegiance to you. 
May that be the response of some among us this morning, laying down our own weapons of warfare and saying, I'm coming under the safety and security of the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Because there is true and lasting peace forever. We pray all this in the name of our risen, reigning, and soon coming, we pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.